Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Tyler Yank, a co-host of the channel, and today I have the pleasure to speak to Dr. Robert Ingram. Dr. Ingram is a professor in the History Department of Ohio University and the director of the George Washington Forum on American Ideas, Politics, and History. Today, he is here with me to discuss his brand new book, Reformation Without End, Religion, Politics, and the Past in Post-Revolutionary England, which was just published in 2018 by Manchester University Press. Robert, thank you very much for joining me today and welcome to the show. Yeah, long time uh, listener, first time caller. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Robert, I wonder if you could begin by saying a little bit about yourself and some of the projects you've been involved in um, over the past little while. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, uh, you know, I, we were talking offline. I'm sort of from the from the deep south, and you know, your parents say never never say nice things about yourself. Uh, but I'll <laughs> but I'll try to maybe help set the you know scene a little bit at least for for. Um, for for the for the book, uh, yeah. So I so I teach at Ohio University, but you know I, I'm not from Ohio. Um, and as I was sort of thinking about this, the the kind of slightly weird background uh, that I had, you know, may explain, um, you know, at least my interest in the in the book. So I I grew up in in Louisiana. Um, families all from there. It's uh, people who who know anything about the state. It's it's kind of like a poor man's Ireland. Um, the south part of the state is is you know, predominantly Roman Catholic and the North part is, is predominantly, uh, Protestant. And I grew up in the, in the North part and was a, was a Presbyterian. And, um, it, it made it, at least early on, it made me think, wow, you know, religion, it, it, it really matters, right? It, it matters for your identity. It matters knowing what somebody's religious past is or, or where they stand on first principles sort of, um, is just a really important thing to help you understand that, that person. So, you know, I grew up, um, you know, pine trees and Protestants in, in, in North Louisiana. Uh, and I thought, you know, like, like all kids did, that was all there was. And then I, and I went undergrad, I went to a, a place called the university of the South in Swanee, Tennessee. And Swanee, um, is, uh, owned by or run by, um, the Episcopal church, uh, of the, of the, 28 or something like that southern diocese in in the u.s and and the chapel is right in the middle of of campus it's modeled on i think saint mary the virgin the university chapel at, at oxford some of the buildings are modeled on different oxbridge buildings in the kind of way that you did in the south in the 19th century um sandstone and sandstone and gothic architecture on top of a mountain but the chapel's right there and yeah you go in and on a sunday and um and there was a lot of kneeling and standing it was confusing and smells and bells and it 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 seemed you know to my protestant eyes and ears nose you know kind of a a, a catholicly like place but it was it was it was protestant so yeah sort of became familiar with um, the Anglican tradition there. And I went to grad school. I went to um, the University of Virginia and UVA. I was, you know, I was, I was a nun. I was, you know, if, if you slept in on Sundays, that's what, that's what I did. Didn't, wasn't much organized religion uh, at all. Got my PhD there. 
Um, and then my first uh, job, only job, uh, was at Ohio University. And we came here um, 15 years ago. Um, and while here, uh, for you know, a variety of reasons, surprising to me, uh, swam the Tiber and, and became Roman Catholic. So I, so I grew up Presbyterian, went to an Episcopal uh, college, didn't do much of anything in my 20s. Um, and then, you know, uh, am, am, a, am a papist of a, of a sort now. And, um, and so that, you know, it, I like to think it allows me to, to look at, um, you know, to look at the past religious affiliations, religious beliefs from, a, from at least sympathetically from a variety of, uh, of perspectives. Um, and it certainly, you know, led me to, led me to take uh, religion seriously. Maybe the second thing is again, you know, just idiosyncratically, um, I, the, the, the particular grad school training I had, um, my advisor died halfway through. So I sort of, you know, was kind of a, a, of a bit of an orphan and oh, was gosh. picked up, but it, but it, but it meant that, I mean, the, you know, bad for him. Um, the, the good thing was it, it just meant that I wasn't, um, I, I'm not, I wasn't trained up in one particular school or, or methodological approach. So it's, it's um, sort of an old fashioned, you know, English empiricist, ask a question, go look at the evidence, see what happens. And um, if there is an approach, it's just, you know, that old Quentin Skinner line, you know, try to see things their way and the kinds of historians that I've liked and the kinds of book that I'm trying to write um, is one that um, is trying to see the 18th century their way. And in a, write a book that people about whom I'm writing would recognize. Uh, but also, um, it, it means that, that I'm not completely beholden to, to modern categories, right. Um, uh, for thinking about the 18th century, mm-hmm. I hope that's the value added. Maybe, maybe it's not, but, but I like to think that if there's value added, that's, that's where it comes from. Great. So, um, so then in terms of setting the scene, um, your book examines life in a post-revolutionary society. So for example, you write that the 18th century English were a revolution haunted people. So set the scene for us. What does that mean? So, um, if you, if you go ask historians, right, of, 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 of Britain, and you know this, right, you're a British historian, they'll say, well, how do you, how do you chop up British, the British past, and I'll say, well, you know, there, there, are, there are colleagues in the department who work in, in early modern Britain. And, and where does early modern Britain end? Well, it ends, I don't know, maybe it ends around the Restoration, maybe 1660, maybe it ends in the Glorious Revolution of 1668, 69. And then where does modern history begin? It's after that. So there's a, the, you know, the, the sort of arc is there's a Reformation in the 16th century. It sort of, you know, extends into the 17th century. There are civil wars in the 1640. There's an Eregnum. There's a restoration of the, of the monarchy in 1660, and in 1688, 89, there's a glorious revolution, and and all of that stuff from the past. You can you can almost draw a line under it. The, the, the image I use in my book is like a continental divide, right? So that the, the, all the historiographical waters from 1689, maybe 1714 back, they flow back into this sort of sea of early modernity. And, and um, after 1688, it's, we're, we're into modern Britain and there are different kinds of problems. Religion doesn't matter much. It's a secular um, uh, society. It's a polite and commercial people. Empire matters, political economy, the kinds of modern kinds of questions are, uh, are, are important. Um, and, and this book, uh, if there's one thing it does, it asks, well, did all the problems 
unleashed by the Reformation? Did they actually go away with 1688-89? Can you have a glorious revolution and all of a sudden it just doesn't matter, right? Um, and the argument is, yeah, it does matter, right? Um, all of these problems unleashed by the Reformation had a life in the 18th century and, and they were important for politics and intellectual life. And you can't understand that thing we call the English Enlightenment and you can't understand English politics, Um you can't understand 18th century England unless you understand that the people living in it were haunted by the worst, the bloodiest war in English history, the, the English, um, the English revolution. Um, and it was huge, uh, a huge loss of life, uh, in that, uh, in that revolution. And so they didn't forget it, right? We have. Uh, and so it's trying to sort of ask, how do you, what was it like to live in a world haunted by the revolution. Um, it's about forgetting. It's about managing it. It's about trying to deal with the same problems that caused the English civil wars and, uh, and the glorious revolution, these problems unleashed by, um, the reformation. What sort of state, uh, is the English state? What sort of church should the English church be? What should the relation between English church and state believe? What be, what should, uh, the English church believe how should it how should people who go to the english church worship all of these problems weren't necessarily solved by the glorious revolution um there was a temporary solution uh, but intellectually the issues remained live and so what the book is trying to do is to think about how do the early modern the things we think of as early modern problems how did they play in what we think of I would say, you know, erroneously is modern Britain. So that's why I call it reformation without end. It's, it's about a reformation that contemporaries thought just couldn't end. Um, and they worried about a, a recurrence of the sort of bloody wars of the 17th century. Great. And then just, I guess, for someone like myself with a little bit less knowledge of the reformation period and what came after, could you also say something about the nature of religious culture in this period? So how religious belief and practice tended to permeate, I think, many aspects of one's life? Yeah, it's, um, so it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Now we, a, a way that I sort of came into this, and maybe I'll just tell you, you know, like how I actually came onto this book. I, I, I did not set out to write this book. I did not set out to research. I thought I was going to do something completely different. And I came across a, um, a complaint from David Hume, uh, in the late 1740s and early 1750s. And he's writing to his book publisher um, about his inquiry concerning human understanding. And he's making what I take to be a, a standard author's complaint. He's saying, hey, uh, Andrew Miller, no one's reading my book. Right? They're, 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 they're not paying any attention to this. And they're especially not paying to the stuff that I write about miracles. I've taken down miracles and no one's paying attention to it. Instead, they're reading the book of this Cambridge librarian named named Conyers Middleton. And I thought when I just did a throwaway line when I was working on my first book, I thought, oh, this this is interesting, right? This this guy is just nobody's writing his book and he's just he's upset about it and he's trying to blame somebody. Surely he can't be right. And then I just sort of grabbed a string one summer. Um, somebody had told me, I, I like to think it's my advisor, but I can't remember exactly who said when you go into an archive and do research, always look at manuscript material that has nothing to do with the project you're currently working on, right? It'll help you see your project differently and it'll give you ideas for the future. So I was in the British library and I pulled up Middleton's letters um, and, and started reading him. I thought, well, this guy's an interesting guy. I, I, I wonder 
how many people were reading Middleton. And once I started counting, I realized that Hume was right. Most people who responded um, uh, to uh, in, who got engaged in a debate about miracles in the 1740s and 50s were in fact responding to Conyers Middleton. And I thought, okay, well, I didn't know that. I, uh, what else don't I know? Um, and I just started you know, digging in archives, but also counting. And one of the things that's um, interesting about the 18th century is if you just start looking at what books sold somewhere most liberally understood somewhere a little over a half of books were um, related in some way or another to, um, to religion and most narrowly conceived around a quarter. So somewhere, if you want to take the most cramped definition around a quarter of everything published was related to religion and at its most expansive, somewhere around 50 to 60%. And then you think, well, booksellers aren't, they're not public charities, right? You know, people that they have, they, what they sell, what they print, they have to sell. So if it's printing, it's selling. Okay, good. Well, right. So then, then you have, well, there are a lot of things in a, in a, in a world exploding with print in the 18th century that are, that deal with one aspect or another of religion, thinking about empire and religion, thinking about history and religion, thinking about natural science and religion. And so then I just, I I thought, well, what were they talking about? You know, what sorts of things were they talking about? Um, And one of the things that I hope comes through in the book is that if you're interested in empire, if you're interested in history, if you're interested in natural philosophy, if you're interested in if you're interested in almost any subject um, that that you think is of modern historical importance, it's somebody in the 18th century was thinking about that, and indeed, probably most people in the 18th century were writing about that in theological terms. So, I think the first thing to say about um, uh, you know your question is we think of the Reformation as being a religious moment and that maybe the 18th to 17th century civil wars were wars of religion. I think what I'd, what I'd like to suggest is, is that 18th century England was an overwhelmingly Protestant place. It was an overwhelmingly Protestant culture. It was an overwhelmingly anti-Catholic or anti-Papist um, uh, culture uh, as well. And that the arguments that had traction were ones that had to deal with theology, ecclesiastical history um, in ways that are that are unexpected uh, for us. Yeah. And um, as you say, so the growth of print culture in the 17th and 18th centuries is extremely central to the book. So could you say a word about why this is significant? Why the why print culture is? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, it's it's an attempt. <laughs> One of the things about the book is I try to think about everything that is um, published, everything that's published as a, as a work of polemic. Um, and by that, I don't mean it in a pejorative way. I mean it as polemic as something that is trying to convince the reader to adopt a certain position or to do a certain thing. So a biblical commentary is a work of polemic. Something we think of as a normal political pamphlet is a work of polemic. So if you look at, you know, the, the four people who I center the book around and all the minor uh, characters uh, in, in the book, they're all making arguments to uh, a growing reading public, trying to convince them um, to adopt one position or 
another. And so you, the way I think about uh, the 18th century is it's a, it's a world awash in print, but it's a world awash in competing ideas about ecclesiology, about church state relations, about what is true in precisely the same way that the 17th and the 16th century was awash in um, print about what is true, what is the right ecclesiology, what is um, what kind of church should the Church of, of England be as well. So the print culture is about how do you make an argument that is plausible, that is going to convince people to adopt your position. And um, print doesn't change everything, but it changes uh, a lot, right? Pulpit is a place where people make uh, arguments. And there's some, you know, there's part of the book where I try to look at, at manuscript um, sermons to see how, you know, one of the characters, Zachary Gray, um, how the things that he says to a little Bedfordshire parish or a little Cambridge parish relate to some of the things that he says uh, that he actually writes about in, in print. But the thing that's important to me about print uh, in the 18th century is that it's the, it's the main way that you can mobilize people to your point of view. And so we, if we need to think about um, the, the, the religious literature of the period as attempts to persuade, to submit um, people to your point of view, but also to persuade um, people as well. Yeah, and you you use the word um, or the I guess phrasing polemical divines to describe each of the four characters. So, what's a polemical divine? So, uh, I'm not sure if it's the most elegant term uh, I could have uh, I could have used, um, but they they are clergy who um, engage in printed uh, in, in printed polemic. It was the shortest thing I could come up with. Um, and and part of the thing about using polemical divine is a you know it's intentionally trying to to get two meanings of that. One, I mean, as you'll see, I mean, these were the 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 sort of of um, public fights that these uh, people engaged in really vicious. I mean, they were really nasty um, at times, uh, at times. When I, so I wanted to get it by using polemic. I wanted to get a sense of, um, you know, our modern understanding of polemic as something that's got an edge to it and a kind of dark and, and maybe nasty side, but also they're, they're trying to convince. Right. And so I wanted to get that, uh, that across as well. So um, if you look, what are the things being printed in this, uh, in this print culture, that's awash with uh, religious print. It's, clergy are doing a lot of it. Sometimes they're lawyers, sometimes they're people who aren't, but uh, right at the heart of it are um, clerics of one sort or another who are engaged in trying to convince people um, to adopt their point of view. Yeah. So in the the meat of the book, um, you orient around four gentlemen, um, Daniel Waterland, Conyers Middleton, Zachary Gray, and William Warburton. So who are each of these men and, and why did you select them? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, I thought that there's, there are great myths. You should like, when you talk to people who write second books, you should, you should ask the question, how long do you think it would take you to research and write your second book? And my guess is, is that almost every author would say, oh, I thought it'd be really quick, right? The myth of the second book is, um, is, is pervasive in our, in our profession. And I, I bought into it. I thought, oh, I'll write a short book. I found this Middleton stuff. There wasn't a long study on Middleton. I thought this would be great and it'd be fine. And I realized now it, it somehow a biography wasn't going to work. It just w- wouldn't do full justice to, um, it wouldn't do full justice to the material. Cause I was reading Middleton who was Conyers Middleton was, um, uh, 
a Cambridge Don. Um, he uh, he came from York in the north, but came to Cambridge and never left. Um, and he ended up becoming a fellow of Trinity College, uh, C- Cambridge, and then he ended up becoming uh, a librarian, a great battler of Richard Bentley, one of the great classicists. Um, and I thought the book would be about him. But then as I, as I started to read, I realized, well, you know, it's hard to tell that story without telling the story of his contemporary, Daniel Waterland, who wasn't from York, uh, but was from uh, Lincolnshire and came to Magdalen College, Cambridge, and, and never left. Um, and then uh, I realized, well, you know, there's this other character, Zachary Gray, somebody else from also from York, who came to Cambridge and never left. There's a theme here. Came to Cambridge and never left uh, and, uh, and, was, uh, and was somebody. And then I realized, well, you couldn't tell it without somebody else who actually didn't go to Cambridge, the one non-college educated uh, person of this, but who was a, who was a cleric who had been a lawyer himself, uh, William Warburton, who um, John Pocock uh, says is one of the two great figures of, of the English enlightenment, Edmund uh, Gibbon being, or Edward Gibbon being the, uh, the, the other one. So um, I, I was trying to figure out how am I going to make, uh, you know, these people are fighting with each other. And I thought, well, this would be a great way to sort of look at four people who are, contending with one another, bringing all of the sort of side characters. And this would give me a way to capture really the full range of what's going on. So I wouldn't be writing about deism or about natural philosophy or about ecclesiology. I'd be able to see the whole range of interests of these authors. But I had, you know, I must say I had no way to figure out how to, how to organize it. And, um, I, I finally figured it out. Uh, it may be, um, completely loopy, but I was uh, I was rereading uh, William Faulkner's Sound in the Fury, um, which is why there's a you know a, an epigraph at the beginning from 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 Faulkner, um, and I thought ah this is it right so I'll tell I'll tell the same story basically from four different points of view. So if you know that, if you know that novel, it's a, it's a novel in which Faulkner tells the same story Mm -hmm. roughly from four different points of view. So I thought I'll just do that. And I'll try to weave bits and pieces, you know, trying to be slightly or slightly artistic. But what, what I was trying to do by talking about Waterland, um, the kind of apotheosis, as I call him, of orthodoxy and Middleton, somebody who was a who was a, a contemporary of Waterlands but reached very different conclusions and Gray and 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 Warburton was tr- trying to give a sense of just the full range of interests of English intellectual life more generally but also of of political divines in the uh, in the 18th century. Yeah, so so these four men they were in conversation with each other. Yes. Okay. And did it get heated? <laughs> yeah. Short answer. Yes, uh, it did. Uh, it did. It did get heated. I think one of the, um, so, you know, if, if looking at, you know, the, the big themes that, you know, I, I, the sort of subjects that I'm you know, talking about in, uh, in the book, um, mm-hmm. if, yeah, the Eucharist and, and, uh, Christology and, um, and, and deism and the primitive church and, you know, how, how is one saved and Methodism and miracles. And you, and you think about this thing, well, it's not actually like, who's going to get, who's going to get huffed, you know, about this, as it turns out, everyone, um, who engaged <laughs> in this debate, uh, got angry, uh, about it. One of the things that I found that was interesting about Middleton and it really drew, that really drew me to him, um, is that he was, he's the perfect example. He's the clearest, there's the clearest evidentiary example of precisely how someone could make 
an argument, and Middleton's argument that that Hume disapproved of, or that Hume thought people were you know paying attention to, was Middleton said, unlike Hume, I believe that there that miracles are possible, and I believe that there were some miracles, and those miracles happened only during the life of Christ, and after that, there were no miracles. So, on the one hand. Middleton saying, yes, I think the miraculous is possible, and I believe that God became incarnate, and I believe that he died, and I believe that three days later he, is, he arose and ascended into heaven, etc. On the other hand, I believe that there were no other miracles that happened um, you know, after, uh, after that. And you think, well, that's a, from our perspective, that's a pretty conservative position to take. In the 18th century, people thought that was a wildly radical position um, uh, to take, right? Because the debate was, well, when did, when did, the, when did miracles actually end? Right, so that's the that's the that's the issue at at play. What you find um, is that Robert Walpole, the first Prime Minister of uh, of Great Britain, it, it went as high as him involved in which people tried to screw over Conyer Middleton's career and and did it successfully. And so, part of what I try to try to trace in the book is precisely how he fell out. I mean, he was, a, he was sort of a hell fellow well met. He, he was liked by his contemporaries until he wasn't liked by his contemporaries. And the thing that made him not liked by his contemporaries was precisely the fact that he argued some things that they thought were heterodox. So to, so to be able to chart how the, the sort of personal effect of, um, of being, of what it meant to be heterodox, but not to be a kind of free thinker or a deist, but just to be a kind of slightly heterodox Christian, right? I mean, that was considered, that was considered to be uh, radical. And what you, what you see is that um, one, the efforts to suppress his career, because he was clearly a very clever person who should by all rights have been, um, uh, been on the Episcopal bench, sat in the house of Lords. Um, It was, it was short circuited. Um, and it was short-circuited by very uh, powerful people. But what you also see is the way that that actually radicalized Middleton and made him take on positions that he might not have taken on early. In other words, his anger um, you know, seeps through, but also you see his position becoming um, slightly more radicalized and hardened as he moves through. And, and he himself, you know, as you, you know, saw in the book, says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just sick of it. It's like, you know, it's like Michael Douglas and falling down. It's somebody who gets angrier and angrier and angrier. And in the end, um, uh, he starts, he doesn't take a gun uh, and start walking the LA freeways, but he does, uh, he does you know, start firing at any friend um, or former friend possible to sort of try to exact some sort of public, uh, some, some public revenge. So trying to get, trying to, to get, to give you a sense of, of how this worked, but also to show, the mechanisms of it. One of the things that's that's sort of interesting about um, uh, Middleton is, I you know, try to show earlier in the book. One of the ways that that um, one of the things that's interesting is how many books were published anonymously. All right. So Matthew Tyndall, one of the characters that I have in this uh, book, wrote famously writes of the Christian Church uh, in in the early 17 aughts and, and wrote Christianity as old as creation. Never put his name to a book any book that he wrote from the 1690s to the 1730s. And if you start looking, you know, on, on ESTC or Ebo or Echo and start asking who wrote what, you'll often see names in brackets, right? This, this, this pamphlet is attributed to someone, but his name isn't, or her name isn't on the, the title page. And one of the reasons that is, is that um, it prevents you from being 
persecuted. And it might actually at times prevent you from being prosecuted. So the fear of being prosecuted by the law for saying something um, libelous or um, uh, treasonous, and also the, the position of being persecuted. So Middleton was persecuted, but Middleton was also perfectly willing to prosecute, um, to use the law to prosecute uh, uh, you know, some of his political opponents, Richard Bentley, uh, in the late 17-teens and early 1720s, um, being an example um, you know, of that. So yeah, long answer. It, it got very contentious and feelings were hurt. Um, and, and when you read, when you read this stuff, you think, oh, these are all clergymen and they're just, they're just dripping with acid, right? You realize somebody like Swift or Defoe or normal, not, not weird, right? I mean, these, these are anomalous figures They They write like everybody else. They just write more elegantly, right. Than everybody else in their period. Nasty, nasty period. Um, yeah. And reminds us of our own, right. In some ways, right. You know, yeah. you don't need Twitter. It's not 140 characters to do it. It's just a, a you know, a 14 or 20 page pamphlet uh, in which you can, uh, in which you can fire off <laughs> your missive at your political opponent. That's a great comparison. Um, yeah, and another sort of central idiom, I guess, within these 18th century debates was actually history, which I found kind of interesting. So like the history of Christianity and the history of the church, and these four gentlemen were sort of writing about this. So could you say a little bit about that and sort of where it and the research of history fits in? Yeah, so I think, you know, if if you, if you asked any, um, you know, undergrad or grad, you know, like, what was the 18th century? That's the age of enlightenment. What's the age of enlightenment? The age of enlightenment is, is time when reason, um, you know, raising which the standard of evidence was uh, reason. As it turns out, um, that's just not really the case, right? You know, rationalist metaphysics weren't the thing. The the mode of argument, the mode whether whether you know whatever position you took, the most heterodox or the most um, orthodox. It depended on how well you did, what kind of history you wrote. And so polemics were about telling plausible narratives about the past. And as you, you know, so rightly note, what kinds of pasts, the ancient church, right? Ancient Rome, ancient church, ancient Christian church, but also the English Reformation, the English Civil Wars. And then, um, you know, one of the things that uh, that that mattered in, in, in that was um, your sources, right? So one of the things that uh, one of the things that becomes uh, evident through this is that there are people who hoard certain sources, right? So um, uh, Zachary Gray has access to the papers, uh, a certain set of 17th century original manuscripts, the Nolson manuscripts. Only Orthodox people are let to look at those manuscripts. Then there are uh, you know the the, the Morris uh, papers, and and only sort of um, heterodox types are allowed to look at the Morris papers. So you see polemical sides in a sense guarding sources. So we think, yeah, you go to the British Library, you go to the National Archives, you go to some archive, anybody can look at it and make your own judgment. Um, people are hoarding, uh, as it were, uh, archives in the 18th century, and only letting the right sorts of people um, take a gander at them, and not letting the wrong sorts of people uh, take uh, take a gander. So even archives are in a way polemicized, uh, you know, made polemical in, in the in the 18th century. Um, but then, you know, one of the things that uh, that I didn't expect to find, right? This is the last stuff I didn't expect to find uh, in uh, in this. But one of the things I didn't expect to find were that even sometimes when I was reading people like, um, you know, William Warburton's Alliance of Church and State, I mean, there were others as well, is that they were thinking about these subjects 
by reading history. So you'd read the book itself. And, and the example I give in the book is the Alliance of Church and State. It's a kind of locking and take Erastian reading on how the English church and state should relate to one another. Right. So, so there it is. There's, there's almost nothing about English history in that it's written in the early 1730s, published in 1736. One of the things that you realize though, um, is that he wrote that book while reading Clarendon's history of the English rebellion. And I found in, uh, the, the herd library in Hortlebury, uh, Warburton's own copy of it. And you can say, oh, he's he's reading this in 1731 and 1732. And, and, and you can follow through the marginalia of, of everything uh, that he wrote through the margins. And what um, what's clear from that is that, that Warburton is absolutely um, freaked out about the possibility of a return to the world that that Clarendon's writing about the seventeen or the sixteen forties and this and the sixteen fifties a world of of civil war, and the and the the thing that he sees that caused that war was debates over religion, and so having an Erastian relationship of church and state was for him a solution to that problem. Um, but none of that appears in the Alliance. We just know from marginalia that he's reading Clarendon's history while thinking about this problem of, um, of ecclesiology and of church-state uh, and of church-state relations. So everybody, uh, every single chapter of the book is about how people thought about history. You know, I talk about meth- how are Methodists understood, right? Methodists were understood as, as one of two or both things. One they were just like those crazy donatists in the early church, right? These people who are these persecutory zeal filled, enthusiastic, uh, crazies from, uh, North Africa in, uh, in, um, the early church and, or they were like those crazy Puritans from the 17th century. And so, um, you know, and, and history was the way that people thought about Methodism, or Newtonianism, or natural philosophy, or whatever it might be. History was the way that people tried to make sense of the present that they, uh, that they lived in, in, uh, in, the, in the 18th century. So I sort of say it's a, people were using the past to help them make sense of the present, to orientate themselves toward, uh, toward the future. Yeah, and I think that's something we should still be doing today. For example, history is the way... Yes, right, and 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 you know some of the there are good and bad ways to do that history, right? Um, and uh, and so you see, um, I think one of the other things that's that's so you point a continuity with the present. I think maybe one thing to point a sort of disjuncture uh, with uh, with the present is that each of the people in this book and their and the and the sort of minor characters they all thought that his, the truth, that capital T truth lay someplace in the past. And so um, they were, they were sort of like, you know, they were hunting for it in the past. Did it lie in the primitive church in the first hundred years of the, of the church? Did it lie in the first 400 years? Did it lie in the first 800 years? Did it lie in the first, 50 years of the Reformation or a hundred years of the Reformation, where did it lie? And so there, these, the, what, what gave these debates such vehemence to go, to go back to your, your previous, you know, right point about the kind of temperature is these people thought they were fighting about truth. 
they were they thought they were fighting about what was capital T true, right? So this wasn't just people being jerks to be jerks. They 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 believed everything was at stake. Um, the salvations of souls were at stake, their own and those of their of their of their countrymen and women, but also the fate of their uh, the fate of their nation. And so, when you think you're in that kind of fight, it, it gives it gives a kind of purchase to it um, that um, that we often, I think, today sometimes miss when thinking about the past. But I, but but um, I mean, your your point about bringing in the the present truth in advertising, right? I mean, one of the things that helped me or that made me interested in this once I grabbed a hold of, of an unexpected uh, archival thread was I was thinking about the present in which we live. You know, can you, to what degree can you think a heterodox thought? How can you express a heterodox thought? What are the consequences of saying a heterodox thought? What's rude? What's polite? Um, what is true? What is not? What are the arenas in which one can argue that? Um, and uh, if I, you know, my, my sort of you know enjoinder to, uh, to to readers is is in a way to think about the past in the way you said, like is instructive, right? I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, um, and we think uh, we live in a world that's completely different from before. And sure, the issues that we face uh, are. Uh, in some ways, but in some ways they're not right. We're, we are concerned about what is true. How should we, how, how best should we argue for what we think um, to be true? How do we treat people who might disagree uh, with us? Um, And the 18th century world I write about, you know, these sort of fusty clerics um, has to my mind, at least a hell of a lot to, to, to tell us about how we might think about it um, today. All very important questions. Um, great. It's a great read. Um, I'd like to wrap up our conversation by asking the f- traditional final last question um, with New Book Network uh, podcasts. So what are you working on next? Yeah. So um, I, you know, so my first book was on the 1760s. My second book was on the seven, 50s and 60s. My second book was on like the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And my next is going to be on the ni- 1690s. I'm sort of moving backward in time, uh, foolishly. Um, but also because, you know, I mean, <laughs> when you when you have to devote a lot of your own quiet time to, uh, to, to sitting in archives and reading stuff. And my thought is, you know, I've only got one life. I'd like to discover in a sense a different world every time. So I'm, I'm taking a theme uh, that I sort of talk about at the end of, uh, of, of the book and that runs through this. You know, one of the things I say is that, um, you know, in the end, Leviathan won. And, and, and what I mean about that is um, this, the 18th century world is a debate about what constitutes, or intellectual world is a debate about what constitutes truth. Um, guess what? It, 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 it can't, it wasn't solved. Um, then uh, or now, um, what is what is metaphysically true? Um, but contemporaries thought that in order to keep the peace, right, you need an arbiter. Who became the arbiter in the 18th century? The state uh, became the arbiter, and you know, try to show a little bit of that in uh, in the book. So the next project um, that I'm working on is is trying to think about how people of all stripes in the 18th century. Um, sacralized the state, that the state became 
the highest uh, the highest uh, judge and arbiter. And I'm and I'm uh, thinking about that, trying to think about it by way of thinking about um, Ireland and England in in um, conjunction with one another. Uh, from the glorious revolution, basically until the end of Walpole's uh, reign and choosing Ireland because it is about 90% of people are Roman Catholic and about 10% of people are uh, Protestant and thinking about uh, England by way of comparison, because about 99% of people are Protestant and a very, you know, less than 1% are, are Catholic, but both have an established church that is that is um, an episcopal church uh the church of ireland and the church of england are the established uh churches in each of those uh in each of those countries in ireland and in and in and in england and so trying to think both practically and intellectually about how people of all stripes politicians and clerics and what we might think of as sort of public intellectuals how they tried um to go about justifying and and affecting the sacralization of uh, of the state, so the state legitimately can become the final arbiter of of, of truth. That's why I jokingly call it Hobbes's century, right? Um, <laughs> the 18th century were people who 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 talked like Lockeans and acted like uh, and acted like Hobbists. So um, we'll see if I can pull it off. But that at least is is what I have my eye on next. Great, Robert. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. So thank you again. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it, Tyler.